0: What have you observed in your own practice of law and how do you help your clients live in a higher frequency place where love, peace, joy is possible instead of just fear, anger, hate, all the low vibrations?
1: I always tell my clients, every moment you spend fighting is a moment of your life you are never going to get back again. Is it worth it is probably the most important question that someone can ask.
0: Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to The Vibe Show. It it has never been more important to protect our high frequencies and to stay in the place of uh, love and happiness and calm uh than it has been since March of twenty twenty I think we're all in this together, and we are all having to find ways to navigate what is a really stressful situation for everyone in the u s and in fact in the world and so uh this was a this this interview I'm doing today was a colleague of mine who's a physician knew that I was really interested in talking about high vibration divorce. And I, I think I said that out on Facebook somewhere. And he said, you know what? You should interview my wife. She is an attorney. Um, And so I got her bio and I connected to her and I decided to have her on the show. She's a, a UCLA uh, English major who went to law school and went to Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles. And she practices family law in Beverly Hills. She's also a yoga instructor. And she talks about how burned out she got in her job um, at a pretty young age. And and I'm not surprised about that because divorce lawyers have to listen to people griping about their ex-spouse. And what they're doing is basically helping their clients navigate some of the worst conflict there is. Divorce is one of the worst life stressors that you can go through. And I had been wondering the last 11 years, especially since I went through my own divorce, you know, probably getting closer to 12 years now, um, how people do it who do a better job of it. So I ask Sarah in this, in this interview questions about what her experience is working with clients who have children. Um, I'm going to be doing more with this, talking about my own experience and what I learned, uh, what I would do if I had it to do over again what i've learned from the fact that most of my friends for at least 10 years there are divorced i'm in a relationship with another divorced person and so how can we do it better how can we you know extract something of value from our experience of going through divorce i mean gosh some people go through it more than once my children's father is a, you know has been divorced multiple times what do we learn from this that can be can be valuable what can be valuable to us what can be what can be valuable in those that we um, that we interact with? So Sarah is a yoga instructor um, for 20 years now, and she kind of combines that, that um, yoga teacher energy with being a litigator. How opposite are those things, right? And so she brought those together and markets herself as a holistic divorce and family law attorney. And that's really just about her style of practice and what her goals are in honoring the human experience while she's helping someone navigate one of the hardest things that you can do in life. So welcome to The Vibe Show, Sarah Intelligator.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
0: All right. So I had never, your husband um, I know from professional connections, and I had never heard of a holistic divorce and family law attorney. Is that a thing or did you make that up? And, and tell us what that is. What does that even mean f- for you and for your clients?
1: Yeah, so I did, to my knowledge anyway, I made that up. Um, I had been teaching yoga for many, many, many years. At this point, I've been teaching for 20 years. But um, when I started practicing law, I'd been teaching yoga um, for quite some time. And um, I worked for a firm. I absolutely hated my job. I wanted to quit, I didn't wanna be an attorney anymore. And so I left my firm after about five years there and I decided that I needed to continue to practice law just to be able to pay my bills, but I was going to pursue something entirely different. Um, so as I, I was practicing out on my own, um, I kind of had this epiphany that, um, that what I did and what I offered and the way that I practice law was somewhat different in that I have this background of teaching yoga um, I had always been really concerned with not just practicing the the aspects of, of law that I'm, I'm required to practice, right? Like zeal- zealously advocating for my clients and whatnot, but um, that I also was really concerned with getting my clients to a better place when they left my office than they were when they walked in. And so, um, and that was something that, I just naturally kind of did my, my role as a yoga teacher. It was something that was so much a part of who I was. And so I just had this epiphany one day. I'm like, why don't I just bridge these two worlds and I can practice law, but I can share with my clients the things that I share with my yoga students and kind of help them get to a better place. And so, um, I came up with the term holistic divorce and family law. It has nothing to do with medicine or, um, Any sort of, uh, you know, alternative modalities like that. But the word holistic simply refers to taking care of the whole, taking care of the whole person. So um, what that looks like is, for example, uh, you know, and I I use this example often because it happens often is somebody will be in court, one of my clients, they'll start crying Uh, hysterically while the judge is making orders or they'll be on the stand and they'll start crying and the judge will say, you know what, we need to take a recess so you can collect yourself. And I will take my client out into the hallway and I'll walk them through a guided meditation or something like that, and then give them tools so when they walk back into the courtroom, they can really have that composure and find their grounding. Um, but it, it could also mean just, you know, my client is not in a good place. And I know that to get through the litigation, they need to get some sort of professional help or, or something of that nature. And so it's maybe referring them out to a specialist or somebody who can help them get through the process. As um, painlessly as possible, but uh, really just to to handhold and to make sure that the human experience in the litigation process is honored and not lost
0: that is really beautiful. I had assumed when I read that you're this holistic divorce attorney that you were going to like I was thinking all right, since i'm a former therapist and I'm a divorcee who went through some terrible years, not not in the divorce, but after. Our divorce was quick and pretty painless. And he said, Hey, you raised these kids. Uh, you can have full custody and and I won't ask for any equity in the house. And it was really quite easy. And then it was the years after that where it was terrible. Um, partly because of his, you know, subsequent marriages and and the dynamics that his future partners brought into, into that scene. But, you know, I was assuming that you were like gonna tell your clients Hey, there's a whole family unit here. Your children are caught in the middle. Can I can I have your permission to advocate for them too? Sort of the holistic uh, family thing. And so I'm just wondering, you know, my my own divorce attorney told me like we would sit in mediations and she would say I'm super depressed and I'm super burned out. Like she was really really plain about that. And she right about the time that my youngest child aged out and turned 18. She left the practice of law, so luckily it wasn't a huge loss to me, but she had been to mediations and to court and lots and lots of things with me. I think five mediations, um you know, at different points throughout a decade, you know, just trying to get my child support or whatever. But you know, as a therapist and as a divorce person, one of the things that I think is most frustrating about divorce is how there's these two parents, they're the adults. And they do these things because they get locked into these conflicts with each other. And I wonder what you have to say about it or how you sort of advocate for the children, even though the children aren't technically your client. But you know, the whole parental alienation thing, how, and and I call it favorite parent contest, where two divorced people will sort of compete to be the favorite parent. And so they become this indulgent parent, which is terrible for the children. And just in general, I felt like a lot of what I saw with my divorced friends and my own experience with divorce is, is that people don't always do what's in the best interest of their child but rather instead they want to they want to be that child's favorite parent and there's this competition going on what have you what have you observed in your own practice of law and how do you help your clients become aware of that because they can't see all the trees because the, you know they're getting what what they're getting whacked they can't see the forest because they're getting whacked by all the trees in the course of their horrible stressful divorce climate
1: yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a it's a one that has a very complex and lengthy answer, I think, um, because it's not you know I my my primary I'm a mother um, even before I was a mother I you know I was always very pro child, and to me one of the most important things was to make sure that the children were protected in the divorce, and um, you know or, or child custody battle. And to try to mitigate the damage that that has on the child. So, one of the things I I always strenuously advocate for, um, it's not something that I necessarily have control over, but I always strongly urge my clients to get the child or children into some sort of counseling or therapy because they really, the children don't really have a neutral third party outlet and um, children do very many different things in divorce or you know child custody cases. Um, it, it really depends on, on the dynamic of the parents, the dynamic of the children, the personality of the children. Sometimes we see with a first child or an only child, um, they're going to take on different roles than, say, a, a younger child or a second or third child. Um, they're going to take things very differently, but Across the board, one thing that all of these children need is some sort of neutral third party with whom to discuss the issues that they're experiencing and the emotions they're feeling. Because as you said, one of the things that happens is that children, um, they may be alienated, but one thing that I see very, very commonly is that the children try to be the peacekeepers. So they will tell mom what she wants to hear. They'll tell dad what he wants to hear. And they think that by doing that, that they're kind of um, quelling the conflict. And in reality, what they're doing is they're, leading mom to think that she's right and empowering her and they're leading dad to think that he's right and empowering him. Or, you know, if you have two moms or two dads, just empowering both parents and that only causes them to fight more because they're saying, oh, Hey, you know, little Billy told me that, you know, that you're doing this or that I'm right, you know, or so, um, and then they get to court and they have some sort of evaluation and the evaluator reads into the record they say you know hey I, I interviewed the child and the child said child loves mom child loves dad um child wants to be with both parents like it's it's always the same story that the child is telling the parents different things um telling them what they want to hear and act, trying in in the child's mind to act as peacekeeper Um, which is a really sad position for the child to be in, to have to feel like they have to be some sort of moderator of their parents' feelings and emotions. Um, So in that scenario, again, therapy and and counseling are always a really wonderful outlet. Um, And in in parental alienation cases, I've worked with a lot of parental alienation cases. Um, I've, I've seen two really, really, really bad ones. Um, that that come to mind. And the one thing about parental alienation that is so crucial is that it gets addressed early on in the litigation. Um, And and the reason that this is kind of a complex issue is because, at least in the state of California, um, a lot of times, most of the time, parents will share what's called joint legal custody. I know in other states, there are other Ways of uh, there are other there's other terminology, but essentially it's it's the right to make major education and healthcare decisions for the child. So usually that's something that both parents have to do together. And you're asking two people who don't get along and are separating precisely because they don't see eye to eye to make decisions together. Obviously they're not going to be able to do that very effectively. Um, So. I I see, uh, you know, if if there's parental alienation going on and one parent, the, the parent who's being alienated says, you know, we need to get the child into counseling, they're having a lot of trouble with what's going on between us. Obviously, the parent who is doing the alienating isn't going to agree to that because they want to further the alienation and they're concerned that the counseling is going to undermine the alienation efforts. So, then you get into a battle of going to court and trying to prove that there's alienation, but alienation is a very slow process. Sometimes it just, um, you know, it, it's it's one of those slow burn things that you might not see. It might not be that overt. It's very subversive. Oftentimes, um, we see it most with people who are narcissistic or suffer from borderline personality disorder, and so. These are not things that the court is necessarily in a position to make a determination about. They're not looking to do uh, an analysis, psychoanalysis of, of the parents. So um, the parental alienation issue is one that is is incredibly complicated, and one that very sadly often gets to a point where. Um, before it's even noticeable and before something can be done about it, it's already gone too far. And I'm not sure if this answers your question so much. I I, I think the ultimate answer to all of these issues and what I personally do as an attorney um, is that I, I really try to urge the parents to get help for the child. So the child has some sort of outlet Um, because that's really the only thing that can be done. You know, obviously, both parents think they're doing what's best for their child, and that's what they're fighting for, or at least that's what they say. Um, And the person who gets the most hurt and the most lost in that process is the child, unfortunately. So, um, you know, whatever we can do to protect the child, it's definitely, yeah, in terms of holistic law, I, I cannot... Actually, represent the child. Sometimes I wish I could, um, but it's it's. I, I definitely put a lot of focus on what's best for the child and try to put things in perspective for my client. You know, if if you're trying to protect your child from something, but in the process you end up tearing them apart, then is the thing you're trying to protect them from worth it? You know, is it worth the battle?
0: Yeah, I think it's so easy as a person in a divorce. Um, where your emotions are so high. And, you know, in some divorces, after a few years, the emotion drains out of it is how I put it. Um, In my case, it got hot. It There wasn't that much in it when we got divorced. And then it got hotter and hotter. And um, for years, um, just because of the strange dynamics, like I said, related to a third party. But one thing that they said to us, you know, we were required to go to the state class Um, and my then husband and I, even though we went at different times, we discussed it later and we both had the same teacher and he said that a couple of funny things. And one of them was that has always stayed with me is that you have to remember when you're engaging with your child is that anything negative that you say about the other parent, you have to remember that child is made up of 50% of that person's DNA. And, and so your child is, is half that other parent And so they identify with that other parent, and they always will, and they should. And so when you attack the other parent, you are attacking the child. And that's how it feels to the child. And I I thought that was very, that really just pierced me in the heart. And before I was even divorced, I just decided to get really, really clear on that. And remind myself of that when I was having my moment with him and being like, why haven't I gotten any child support in three months? Or why don't you help me with anything? Why am I raising these kids by myself? Or whatever, you know, mental rant that I was on. Um, I always tried to come back to this child did not ask for this. This child, it's not her fault. Um, And I want to keep her out of it. And I don't, she's not my confidant. She's not my confidant about her her dad. If I need to talk about her dad and vent somewhere, I need to go talk to a friend or a therapist um and so i'm I'm glad that you advocate for the child getting into counseling um I had to do that, and each of my different children had a very different reaction to the divorce and And I was warned by somebody that the child would have a delay. Some children will have a delayed reaction. I definitely saw that. I had one child. In fact, I'm interviewing her today. We're gonna we're gonna talk to her about what was divorce like because I'm diving into high vibration divorce, and I'm gonna do this episode with you, and I'm gonna do an episode where I talk about what I've learned looking back now that I have you know a long time to look back on it and think well what do I want a parent to know who's heading into that? You know, maybe they can control that. Maybe they can't. I mean, my first piece of advice to everyone would be, then I'm going to ask you what yours is too. Like, Hey, if you can stay together, do it. <laughs> you know, like, is it Dr. Phil who says cheaper to keep her? Um, it's not just money. It's not just money. That's the cost, the cost of a divorce. And, you know, you don't get to choose whether you have a good or bad divorce. I mean, I went into it thinking we'll be amicable and we'll put the children first. And I, I'm only one I'm only one party to that and so um I I wonder what you have to say about what what would you tell what if you could tell a divorcing person just heading into it let's just assume you're not going to try to talk him into staying married there's some good reasons there or they're committed to it what's one thing that you would tell them if you could only give them one piece of advice to to what they can expect and what they should do
1: well, were are we talking specifically about children or like someone who has children or just in general?
0: Anything we've talked about that seems relevant we're, we're what we really want to do is for people who are divorced or are heading into it or early in the process or considering it. I just want them to have lots of information to be able to influence what happens next so that they live in a in a higher frequency place where love, peace, joy is possible instead of just fear, anger, hate, all the low, the low vibrations?
1: Sure. So one thing I always tell my clients is that every moment you spend fighting is a moment of your life you are never going to get back again, no. right? So every single moment that passes by, you choose how to Expend our energy, and if our energy is spent on fighting, then that energy is going to be the energy that we're experiencing, right? And that's the energy we're going to be putting out into the world. It's the energy that our children are going to feel, um, and we're going to be experiencing that negative energy and and the output. And you know, it's it's really simplistic and easy, obviously, to say, you know, it's better not to fight, and it's better to just go your separate ways. And sometimes that's easy. I, I myself actually am divorced. I'm in my second marriage, but in my first marriage, um, it was amicable. I was fortunate that we didn't have any children. We were relatively young. We didn't have much property. So it, it was very easy. I remember we were um, fighting over the couch, not a fight fighting, but not really, you know, in a in an acrimonious way, but we were just kind of deciding who gets to keep the couch and we both wanted it. And I just, I was like, you know what, just keep the couch. I'll buy another one. It's just money. I'll make more money. It's fine. Um, so, you know, I made a choice in that moment that my energy was not worth that time that I would spend fighting over the couch was not worth it because it was just a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so that's a simplistic, piece of advice. But obviously, sometimes there are things that are worth fighting over. Like, you know, if someone is hurting your child, or if someone is engaging in behavior that um, is, is really negative, or if you need support, like you literally cannot survive without support, and the other person is trying to screw you over, or, you know, there are things to fight over. But It's always really, really, really important to take a step back and do a cost-benefit analysis. And that's not just to say, okay, well, I'm going to spend $10,000 on attorney's fees to fight for $5,000 of spousal support. It's not worth it. Um, That's that's one way of doing a cost-benefit analysis. But another is to say, well, what's the emotional cost going to be to me? What is the emotional impact this is going to have on my children? Um, really sit down and think things through because is it worth it? Is, is, a, is probably the most important question that someone can ask himself or herself at the outset of a divorce. And throughout the process, let's say, you know, in the beginning, you say, you know, you know what, I, I need to fight this fight. Um, every step of the way, the question. That we should be asking ourselves: Is this moment of my life that I'm never going to get back again? Is it worth it? Um, you know, or what could I? What else could I be doing in this moment that would be a better use of this time or a more positive use of this time? Um, is you know, is there something else that I can be doing to get that support that I need? maybe, you know, looking for a job instead of spending all this time and energy fighting for spousal support, maybe I should start looking for a job. And so that I don't have to rely on this person, um, who is, who I absolutely hate and who's my sworn enemy now. Like, I don't want to rely on this person. Um, you know, and I don't want to be tied to this person. I don't want to have to see this person every time I go to court, every time I go to a mediation, how can I, Separate myself from this person so that I don't have to waste any more time on him or her.
0: Yeah, that's a great question to ask yourself. That actually is a great question to ask yourself in life in general, because it's not just in the course of your divorce that you have the opportunity to disagree with someone and go to battle with them. You know, right now, when you and I are recording this, there is just an unprecedented amount of conflict, for instance, on Facebook. Like I go out there and I just. I'm always sorry because people are just fighting. They're fighting, fighting, fighting over, you know, why we're all staying at home, why we have thirty percent unemployment. You know, are we just supposed to be quiet and and stay home? And we're starving out a virus? Or, dang it, I want to go back to work. There's people just fighting over that, and um, I find myself tapping into some of those personal growth um, things that I learned in my divorce. Exactly like you said, of do I want this day to disappear? into a black hole of despair, depression, anger, replaying the same, you know, negatives on a loop. And so, you know, I think as strange as it sounds, my divorce may have, you know, been a major part of teaching me to like interrupt that negative loop and get back to a positive place where I'm tapping myself out of it, meditating, doing yoga, going outside in the sunshine, taking deep breaths, you know, all those just simple little hacks but I, um, I wonder what you think of this. this. is like a piece of advice that I've given people. And I don't even know that it qualifies advi- as advice. And, and uh, as a therapist, you don't really even give people advice. But this is a question I had to ask myself and answer in the affirmatively before I would allow myself to get divorced. And that is, don't get divorced hoping to find somebody better. Get divorced only if you would rather be alone for life than be with this person. <laughs> What do you think about that?
1: I think that's a really great question. And it's, it actually plays into, um, I guess, should I even get married in the first place? Because I think that a lot of people who are contemplating marriage or, um, even entering into relationships, whether it's the first time or second time around, um, Their thought is really, I'm never going to find anyone like this. It certainly was for me in my first marriage. And and that's not to say anything negative about my first husband. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. Just, we were not right for each other, but... Um, you know it was it was fear that I would never find somebody else or somebody better. This is the best I can get mm-hmm. and um, in in relationships in general it's it, you have to be comfortable being on your own you have to be you have to know your worth you have to uh, you can't settle in other words and so in in divorce, um, I don't often find that people are looking for someone else. I, I find that people are actually faced with the inquiry, am I willing to live with this for the rest of my life mm-hmm. versus what does my life look like without this? Right. And so it's, it, it's almost like the question that you're asking more applies almost, in, at least in my, my experience, to people who are, Um, looking to get into a relationship or get into a marriage versus um, someone who's already in one. Because by the time people come to me, they're they're like, should I, should I be doing this? Should I just stay? You know, that's, that's where they, they get to that point where the, the decision is really like, do I stay and do this for the rest of my life? Can I handle this for the rest of my life? And You know, and if you're making that inquiry, the answer is probably already no, like, can I, can I put up with this for the rest of my life? Well, you've already gotten to the point where you feel like you're putting up, right? Versus living. So it's, um, it's an interesting question and and I like, I like the way that you put it.
0: Yeah, I think that in March 2020 and beyond, as we find ourselves in a very new place in our history, I think a lot of people who wanted to get a divorce are going to decide to work it out just because of financial factors. And I think uh, they'll need to work on their relationship rather rather than getting a divorce. But tell us, even though you work with failing relationships and people who want out of their relationship, what from your vantage point are the the top reasons relationships fail? I mean, we could probably all tick them off on our fingers from what we heard from the research, but what are you seeing? Why do relationships fail?
1: I think that for the most part, relationships fail because people fundamentally get into them for the wrong reasons. Um, They pick the wrong partner because they're looking for the wrong things and they find exactly what they're looking for, right? So if you're getting married because, or you're getting into a relationship because you want that fairy tale wedding, um, then you're going to find anyone anyone will do, right? It's not just like, I'm, I'm not looking for the right person for my life. I'm looking for the person who will wear a tuxedo on this day and stand and pose in the photos. Um, that does not make for a long lasting relationship. Or people neglect to identify um, their fundamental values. Uh, they they mistake just things that they like, like hobbies or things that f- are, are fleeting that, that might not necessarily be true in 20 years like for example like oh i i love going to concerts and uh you know i love music well that may be the case and that may be wonderful and it's something that you can share together in common but in 20 years time that's not necessarily something that's going to keep you together and so it's not really a fundamental value whereas something like Um, You know, family is really important to me and I can't imagine not being close to my family and I need a partner who is also close to his or her family because this person will understand that need and we're going to, if we choose to have children, raise our children with that value together. Um, That's something that carries into a a meaningful lifelong relationship. Um, I think foundational factors like... Um, you know, are, are you a, a team? Do you play together as a team? Um, is there trust? Is there honesty? Um, you know, is there, are you are you a partnership or are you working against one another? And there there are things that in the courtship process we can really look at to answer these questions for ourselves. But I think that people neglect to do that because they're so caught up in, um, you know, oh, he's, he's attractive or she's attractive or, um, you know, and, and this is certainly not a judgment, but like people will sleep together on the first date or, and that that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's what you're doing, and as a result of that, you're now a little bit more emotionally attached, um, then, you know, then you go on a second date because you're looking for that, for more of that physical attachment, more of that, rather than am I, Really conducting an interview here. It's, it's 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 you know we we equate courtship with this like really super romantic notion of um, you know oh dating and um, uh, prince charming kind of these these notions that that dating is this really super romantic thing and it can be and and it should at times be but dating is really a job interview and it's the most important job position that somebody is applying for and they're a job candidate and um you need to make sure that you ask the right questions and you conduct the appropriate interview to ascertain whether this person is going to advance to the next round of interviews and ultimately get the job and nobody does that people people are just um you know, especially in our world where we have to meet people, not necessarily, you know, you're not meeting people like we used to, like in our village or in an arranged marriage, like we have to go online to meet people. And so there's a different criteria and and we're lonely and we want to be in a relationship and we're so desperate to be in a relationship. And so we, we justify to ourselves, oh yes, this is the right person. This is a wonderful person. And and so we get into these relationships for the wrong reasons and we know it intuitively. People know it. I mean, people come into my office all the time and say, you know, I, I kind of suspected I, I knew that this person, I knew this about them, but I thought maybe, you know, it would change when over time or, you know, Oh, maybe I thought we could work on it or things like that. people know, and they ignore it because they are so starving to have that affection and that um, human connection.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, something we all do. And it's our optimism, but we have to check our optimism, especially when we're going to like sign on the dotted line with something as big as a partnership, a personal partnership, business partnership too. One thing I say to people who work for me a lot is when we're working with a new partner, so this applies to you know our personal relationships and our other relationships. Hey, what it is in the beginning is what it is. That's what I always say. What it is in the beginning is what it is. You cannot delude yourself, especially if people who have already been married once. There's no reason to delude yourself that what you're seeing in the person you're dating and you kind of think of yourself as getting married a second time, well, it'll change after we get married. No, 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 no. That's what we did. That's what we said to ourselves when we went into our first marriages. No excuse for doing it a second time. I. Sorry to sorry to get a little you know on my high horse about that one, but I I uh, and that and that does not mean that people can't change, right? Like both can be true. It can hold space for both of those, and people do change. But they change only if they want to, and they certainly don't change because we told them to. So I I bet you've learned a lot from being married twice, even though you're you you look very very young. Then they're they're not seeing you. They she is absolutely gorgeous. Like. <laughs>
1: I was married very young the first time um, I was 26 when I got married, but we had been together for 10 years uh, when we got divorced and eight and a half years when we got married. So um, I was very young. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you can delude yourself all you want. The truth is there. It's not going to change your, you know, if, if you, th- I I've, I've seen Uh, relationships, um, you know, just my friends, for instance, where the relationship was definitely not going in a good direction. They both came into the relationship having issues. um, And I'm not talking about minor issues. I'm talking about like things that they really needed to work through. And they both made a, a, both partners made a super concerted effort. They were, they identified those issues and they, Each individually wanted to work on those issues, and they did, and they did so, at least in my opinion, um, very successfully, where they were able to come together in a different way. And that sort of change is is wonderful and, and doable and possible. But for the most part, what I see is that one partner thinks that he or she can change the other over time or that okay well maybe when we have a child he or she will change or maybe um, once we get married or once we live together things will change and one of my favorite sayings is um, wish in one hand and spit in the other and see which one fills up first and so it's it's kind of that that's sort of what it what it is is like it's it's not going to happen if, if you're the one who thinks you're gonna change the person, it's, it's not going to happen. They have to want to change. And even then, there's only a limit to that. They are who they are. They're a fully formed human being who came into this relationship with their own experiences and those experiences shaped who they are. That's, you, you know, it's who they are at their core. Um, that's really difficult to change. No more than you could change who you are at your own core.
0: Yeah, very well put. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't give me the answer. I thought you were going to, when I said, why do people split up? And you're, I thought you were going to talk about like, you know, sex money and the in-laws, but, um, how about this question? What, what do you see among marriages that succeed? So that really, you know, stand out from your clients who are in there to get divorced, even though maybe they've shared a life together for 10 years or 30 years. Um, what what do you think the keys to success are, especially the things that we can control?
1: I think getting into the relationship in the first place for the right reasons, um, being patient, as I mentioned, you know, finding these fundamental values in common, really making sure that uh, you have a really solid foundation in your relationship, that you trust each other, that you are honest with each other, that you communicate, you're open. Um, you're okay being vulnerable with one another. You know, all of these things that, that we need to make sure exist before we decide to get married in the first place. Um, but I think that one of the biggest things that I see in relationships that succeed, um, which I kind of work backwards from where they went wrong, but I, I feel that it's people who work extraordinarily well as a team. There's a give and take. Um, It's not one-sided. If there's a problem, rather than pointing fingers, the two people mobilize and uh, kind of um, hatch out a a game plan and ascertain how they're going to tackle the problem together. I kind of relate it to, you know, in basketball, like passing the ball to your teammate in order to score a basket, or I'm a big hockey fan, like, you know, passing the puck. I I love this analogy because um, for those who don't know hockey – When somebody scores a goal in hockey, when a player scores a goal, they um, acknowledge the player and then they acknowledge the assist. So the person who passes the puck to the player who scores the goal also gets the, you know, the accolade um, and the, the recognition. And so it doesn't matter who scores the goal the puck needs to be passed in order for that goal to be scored. So you're on the same team. If you're on the same team, you're playing for the same win. You're on the same side. And if you're not passing the ball to each other, then you're on opposite teams. You're not playing together. So I think it's so crucial. And and in those relationships that succeed, it doesn't mean there aren't fights. It doesn't mean there aren't ups and downs. Of course, there always are. But it's not about you know, how things are when, when times are good, because obviously everyone has a good time when things are good. You know, I can go out with my friends and have a great time. That doesn't mean that those friends would be right. Life partners for me. Um, it means that, you know, how successfully do we work through challenges together to overcome obstacles and get to the other side?
0: I like that. So, just in the spirit of higher vibration divorces. Okay. Of course we'd love for families to all stay together, but we're realistic. Um, Talk a little bit about just kind of a a last, a last thing to explore here. You and I, how can litigants, people seeking a divorce, um, or if they have to go into a custody, kind of a fight, how can they reduce that burden, that emotional burden, that litigation really, it really does take a toll on them, on their children, and also like their wallets. A lot of people are are broke at the end of their divorce. So tell, tell us w- what knowledge you have about that.
1: I think part of, I, I touched on that a little bit earlier, which is, you know, choosing your battles, um, deciding whether or not the fight is worth it, your energy, um, whether we do a cost benefit analysis, um, financially speaking, but also emotionally speaking. Um, but I am a huge proponent of, of therapy, if you haven't already gotten that. Um, I think it's one of those things that really helps us to understand what we ourselves are really thinking. It helps to pull things out of us that we might not be in touch with or aware of. And um, the reason I'm, I'm saying this and I'm harping on it is because a lot of times family law is people it's the litigants playing out the dynamic of their relationship in the litigation process. So while it should just be treated as a business transaction, I think a lot of litigation gets really drawn out and prolonged and expensive because people are trying to punish or their emotions are getting involved. Um, For example, uh, you see um, a wife and I'm I'm just using random examples, but a, a wife and her husband cheated on her. Right. And um, she feels hurt, obviously, understandably. And she wants to punish him by taking the children away from him. He Obviously, he doesn't love the children and obviously doesn't care about the family. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been unfaithful. And so you don't care about the kids, so I want to keep the kids. And you know, while there is an element of truth to her feelings or, or there's validity to them, um, that's not always 100% clear cut black and white. Infidelity is a, it's a complex animal sometimes. And so um, the wife is going to try to draw out the litigation in this example um, and try to take the kids away and try to punish him using the kids. And that's something that is totally unnecessary. Right, he's still their dad, they still have a right to have a relationship with him. Um, They themselves might be angry, and the mom might be feeding their anger, and she might be feeding other issues that can only get exacerbated by her involving them in the divorce. And so, um, to extricate your emotions. From something that is so deeply emotional is something that's easier said than done and and that's where I think that the therapeutic process is really instrumental because it gives you an opportunity to vocalize why you are doing certain things why am I choosing to use my children against my husband or to hurt them or why am I choosing to fight this battle and if you can truly and honestly articulate that to yourself then that might help to mitigate some of the fighting and, and um, some of the you know, money you're gonna waste. Um, I always, you know, I, I personally, again, I, I'm, I'm not one of those lawyers who likes to churn fees. I always tell people, look, you can pay me and you can pay for my kid to go to college or you can pay for your kids to go to college. <laughs> I want your kids to go to college. Mine will go. (laughs) So, so, um, to me, that's that's something that you know it's it's important, and it's it's a scary thing because a lot of times you know in family law litigation we get an attorney, we hire an attorney at the onset, and we are asked to place our trust in this complete stranger. We're placing the lives of our children, our financial futures all of this in this complete stranger. And that requires so much trust. And there are unfortunately a lot of attorneys who just are out there because they want to make money and they want to churn fees. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of really good attorneys with integrity out there. And that's, that's always reassuring when I run into them, but, um, there are a lot who just want to take money. And so they're going to also, um, fan the flames and, and, They want, it's to their benefit to kind of fan the flames of acrimony, so to speak. So um, I think one of the really, really important things that as a litigant you can do to make sure that you don't end up spending so much money and fighting battles is to, if you choose to retain an attorney, is in the very beginning of your case to interview multiple attorneys. Um, even if you have to pay for those consultations, the amount that you're going to pay for those consultations pales in comparison to what you're going to spend on an attorney who churns fees yeah. and doesn't get any results and makes your case so emotionally horrible that there is no turning back um, in your relationship with your you know your ex and your children and all of these things so interview. A lot of attorneys and make sure you find someone who resonates with you and someone who has at least from what you can tell integrity and and ask questions and and don't be afraid to really go and talk to a lot of people get information because that is going to make that has the potential to make your divorce very costly and once there's a lot of fighting You know, you can you don't really go back. Like there, there are very few people. You know, people come to my office for the most part, and they always start out by saying, you know, I think this is going to be a really amicable case. I don't think it's going to be, you know, a battle. I think, and a lot of those cases do end up being a battle because the other person chooses an attorney who's a quote unquote shark, Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they want to churn the fees, they want to fan the flames and and whatever. So, I, I, I think that it's really, really important to go into it trying to um, trying to mediate, trying to be amicable and trying to find someone who's going to help you do that.
0: Yeah, I wanna add a few things from my experience because everything you just said make, makes me realize you know, things that I have shared with people when I'm kind of coaching them, not that I do that professionally, but I've coached a lot of women just because I see what they're headed into with their attorney and I'm like, all right, first of all, you need to tell your attorney what kind of divorce you wanna have. You want to tell your attorney how much time you want her to spend. You need to not send an email every time you have a conflict with your ex-spouse. You need to organize your thoughts and put them all on paper and take them to her in an organized fashion when you're ready to spend some some 300 bucks an hour or 500 bucks an hour or whatever it is, where, wherever you live, probably in Beverly Hills, it's probably 500 bucks an hour where you are. And here in Utah, it's more like 275, but it's still expensive for the vast majority of uh of divorcing people. And so organize yourself and for sure interview them and also ask their clients that you know. Like, did did they spend your money well? Were they honest with it? Did you did you feel overbilled? Um did you feel like they just were happy to just churn and churn, like you said. I've never I've worked with attorneys for gosh, 25 years at least. And I've never felt like I was being taken advantage of by by my attorney. I in business and in divorce i have had that i've felt like they're very honest um, and that they wanted to just get the job done and get the things settled and done and not but but you know that's definitely the the joke is you're putting your your attorney's kids through college and and one more thing i want to say and then anything you have as re- that you want to say as reaction to my tips for people headed into divorce is if you're going to go into court insist on 1 hour with your attorney before You go into court. It could be the day before. It could be the morning of. But insist on an hour where you sit down with her and you go through all the things that are important to you that you want to come out of that. Remind her of the details of your case. Because I have so many times, whether it's me or one of my friends, I've gone into court with three different friends who've been in a terrible divorce battle. I have seen those attorneys think that they're going to settle outside the courtroom and then walk into the courtroom unprepared and just bluff their way through it and do a terrible job. So much so, you know, I don't feel like I've been taken advantage of in terms of billable hours, but I do feel like attorneys, you know, are overworked. They are stressed out. They are some of them really suffering from the negativity of the job that they're in. And I've seen them come into a courtroom and just, and and also the, the cases before and after me, sometimes when I've been in court, I'm just astonished at how bad the legal representation is. When, when the attorney's thinking on her feet, don't think that your attorney is sitting around thinking about you all the time, like you're thinking about you and like you're thinking about your case. Remember that your attorney has 10 cases or 30 cases. Maybe you can tell us how many, but you got to help her get her head into your case so that she goes in there armed and confident and, and you're on the same page. You can't just sit, get in the back seat. I have told women, you cannot just get in the back seat and tell your attorney to drive. And I, I have written my own stuff and handed it to my attorney. I don't know the legal pleadings. And then she takes it from there, but I want it laid out. I want to make my case and I make it really organized before I give it to her. And that saves me money. So what do you think of all that?
1: So I can only speak to my own experience, obviously. Um, I, I think everything you said is all wonderful. I don't think there's any harm, certainly, in that. I know personally, um, I make sure that I'm prepared no matter what I think is going to happen in court. And one of the things that I always tell my clients before we go into court is that you never know what's going to happen when you go into court. And that's something that, you know, in all my years of experience, I've learned is you can think that you're going to walk into court and you're going to just go on the record and the judge is going to hear what you have to say. And then you walk into court and the judge says, no, I want you to go downstairs and meet with a settlement officer, or I want you to go out into the hallway and try to talk it out. Or, you know, you get, there and you're completely uh, prepared the judge calls your case and the other attorney wants to go outside and talk and then you end up spending the whole day trying to settle you know there, there's there are myriad things that can happen when you get into court and so that's one thing that I always tell my clients is you know they want to know what's going to happen and I say what's going to happen is that you should be prepared for anything to happen and we have to be flexible. And my job is to think on my toes and to make sure that, you know, I know all the facts of your case, as you said, and to um, be able to confront any eventuality that is posed to us when we do get there. Um, but we have to be prepared, right? So, um, you, you have to be prepared, but everything that you said is, is a good idea. It cannot hurt. And, um, you know, one thing that I always tell clients is my job is not to make decisions for you. My job is to give you as much information as I can possibly give you and to try to get you to have a level of understanding that I have about what is going on in your case. And so that you're in in, in a really, really good position to make an informed decision that affects your life and the lives potentially of your children and your finances. And so I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you need to have a knowledge of the law, a knowledge of the implications of all the things that may happen or that could happen. Um, and, and that's, and then you get to decide how we proceed because, um, you know, ultimately I, I, it's not my life and it's not they're not my children. And so you have to live with whatever happens. And so I want to make sure that you're okay with whatever happens. And, and I also, you know, I think that also what's super important. Um, this is another thing that I find, you know, my husband jokes around, he's like, you know, I tell him about the, fa- and obviously nothing specific, no, no, breach of attorney-client privilege, but I'll, I'll share with him, you know, facts of certain cases. And, you know, when I leave court, I'm like, oh, I won or whatever it was. And um, and he's like, wow, you never lose, which isn't true. But because um, I think there's no winning or losing really in family law. I think you win a little and you lose a little. But um, one of the things that's really important for your attorney to advise you of or for you to understand is that there are certain times where... Um, the judge is more likely to lean a certain way based on what the law is. There's no way to tell because at least in California, family law judges are given really broad discretion to make decisions. But I can pretty much tell you based on my experience what I have seen judges do under similar circumstances and what it is likely may happen if you go to court versus if you take matters into your own hands and settle. And so I think that my clients are always a lot happier with the outcome when they know, okay, well, my chances, if I go to court, um, you know, are that I'm going to have to pay this much child support. So I'm better off just offering this amount and hope that he or she will take it because that's a, a much better, um, a better outcome for me if I take matters into my own hands. So really if you um, are, are faced with the, with going to court, or if you're in mediation, um, ask your attorney what, I know you can't tell me what's going to happen if we go to court, but in your experience, what are the likely outcomes based on the law, what are the likely outcomes of what's going to happen if we go to court versus if we settle? Um, you know is this uh, is this deal that I'm taking? Is this a good deal compared to what what would I get if I went to court? What would happen if I went to court? And then there's that element of uncertainty. If you go to court, there's never certainty. Um, so just having the control and having certainty in your own hands is also a big thing. and I think these are things that all family law attorneys should be telling their clients. like court is sometimes inevitable and sometimes necessary, but it's never a good thing. Um, Always better to take matters into your own hands and to have um, some control versus having some man or woman in a black robe make decisions about your children, about your life.
0: Yeah, it truly is a strange, a very strange uh, feeling to go in and have a man you've never met wearing a black robe, you know, make huge, far-reaching decisions. Um, You know, I told, and you know, what you said really resonates anything can happen. I told my cousin that he had full custody of his children. His wife had left. She kind of didn't want the mom life. She was, you know, in New Jersey, but working in New York City. And he went into family law court. And I said, I said, what you think is going to happen in there is not, and this is a terrifying thing to say, obviously, but what you think is going to happen in there, there will be some kind of like, uh, what do you call it? A curveball come out of, come out of nowhere. And he was just so, he came out of it and he said, uh, it was exactly what you said. And he said, for some reason, the judge fixated on that my little boy, who I think is four, needs a mama and gave full custody to my wife, ex-wife who didn't even want it. Now, that's obviously like a really extreme one. And, you know, people who aren't even seeking <laughs> You know, they're not even seeking full custody and get it in court is obviously a very strange circumstance. And I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but he's, he's a great guy. And he had been the stay at home dad and worked as a, you know, published by several different imprints uh, a an author and uh, lost, lost his kids in court and said, that was exactly what happened is something I didn't expect something we didn't prepare for. So, you know, again, best thing to do is stay married, stay married. If you can work out your problems, somebody else, Somebody else generally is just going to have different problems, and you got to you got a curveball coming out of right field instead of left field or whatever. So,
1: I mean, that, to that, that point. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of cases also because not everything is super acrimonious and terrible, and it's not all that. Mm-hmm. Um, just typically, people need lawyers when things get acrimonious, but a lot of times people come to my office just because they need to put together their judgment or to file paperwork or things like that, and they just don't know how to do it themselves. So I do see cases that are also amicable, and you know, obviously those cases where parents successfully co-parent and things like that. Um, Make for the most successful uh, children of divorce, and and those children come out obviously a lot better when their parents get along and they're able to co-parent. Um, but you know, sometimes staying together and being in the house together and constantly fighting is worse for the children than deciding to get a divorce, separating your households, but then trying to keep things amicable, trying to you know, okay, I'm it's my child's birthday. I'm going to invite my ex-husband to the birthday. You know, if he's moved on, if I've moved on, it's okay. That's just more love for the child. Our our new spouses or new significant others are going to come and join. And it's just more love to give the child. The problem becomes when there are, you know, new significant others, new spouses, there's this element of jealousy. And then that creates, you know, or competition or, and it's, it's, sometimes it's the new spouse. And sometimes it's the new partner who is jealous and starts to create problems. But in any event, the the whole thing is that if everyone can try to be adults and to try to get along and to try to co-parent and to put the emotions aside and just really do what's best for the children truly, um, then sometimes those cases can be a lot Better for the children than children sitting at home where the parents stay together and watching them fight and make little snippy remarks to one another all the time. Or, um, you know, that that's also not a great example of a relationship for children to grow up with.
0: Yeah, the the research shows that um, children of amicable divorces have better outcomes than people with um, who stay married but have a lot of conflict because they're saying snippy things to each other, and then there's there's worse than that too. So
1: Um, we learn how to love and how to be loved from our parents predominantly, right? So if we, and we learn how to be in a relationship by watching our parents. So if we're watching dysfunction, then we're going to seek out that dysfunction later in life when we are old enough to, to get into a relationship, right? So sometimes seeing that two people can still get along and be amicable, even if they're not together, is a better example than being together and being at each other's throats all the time.
0: Yeah, so true. That's a great point to end on. So, I can tell that you're very high integrity as well as high vibration uh divorce lawyer and and it sounds like you've, you know, hit that burnout even only practicing law for 12 years and decided to shift your your practice and the way you do it and the way you engage with your your clients. So, congratulations on that. It's very creative and and I love the whole idea of the holistic. So, tell people where they can find you and where you practice law, where you can be found.
1: Sure. Um, So my website is lafamilylawpractice.com. And my office is located in Beverly Hills, California. And all my information is on my website, lafamilylawpractice.com.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. It was so lovely to talk to you today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.